It is a long course. And the longer we're in it, the more opportunities there are for us to falter and to get tripped up. There are a variety of ways we can be tripped up. Perhaps it's through another person. Somebody comes along and does us wrong. Will that cause us to be hindered in our walk with the Lord? Hardship comes our way maybe by means of our own mistakes, by our own foolishness. Hardships come. Maybe it's just, it seems so random that a challenge or a trial comes our way and we wonder, why is this? And then we start blaming God and we say, oh, well, God is this or God is that or God um, dealt me a bad hand. And so I'm just going to shake my fist at God. There are a variety of temptations that come. Perhaps they come through others. But there are obstacles as we go through the Christian life. I mean, I guess the only, the only alternative is that the moment you come to Christ, then you are immediately taken home to glory. In that case, there would probably be no obstacles. But for the rest of us who are living this out, you can expect that there will be obstacles that will potentially trip you up. And so Paul asks this question, who hindered you? And notice this, who hindered you from obeying the truth? You were running well. You started off really good. You started off on the right course. Who hindered you? And hindered from what? Notice Paul says, who hindered you from obeying the truth? It's important that we realize in this pluralistic culture that we live in that the Christian faith is not an opinion, but it is truth. That it is not a way among many. It is not a, I don't know, I got a lot of friends and they say, well, I'm glad that works out for you, but here's what works out for me. Anybody got friends, neighbors like that? Well, I'm glad that you found something that really works for you. Now, it doesn't really work for me, but I'm glad it works for you. See, Paul doesn't give us that option. Christ doesn't give us that option. The option that Paul gives us is that his message, that is, that a person is saved by by grace through faith on the merits of Christ alone, is the truth. And truth, by definition, truth by its very nature, truth is exclusive. And so the gospel that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and rose again on the third day and ascended into heaven and now and is coming again and that we are saved by his sacrifice and by, um, by his merits and his merits alone. That truth, that is truth. It is not an opinion. It is not, this isn't Baskin Robbins or 31 Flavors where you get to choose the flavor that best suits you. When it comes to the gospel, Paul declares, following on the lines, on the words of Christ, that what they are saying is true. When you say something is true, you are now eliminating everything else. Anything else that does not align with that is now false. So Paul is saying, who hindered you from obeying the truth? And notice this, from obeying the truth. The truth is to be obeyed. Many people have heard the gospel, but are they obeying this truth? It is imperative that we understand that one must hear and believe. And we so often talk about that in, in our church services and evangelistic campaigns, that, that uh, the gospel must be presented, it must be heard, it must be received, and how can they hear without a preacher? And how, you know, so a preacher must be sent to proclaim the gospel. And that with, 
that with our mouth we confess what we believe. And we talk about that. That's really important. But let's not forget the totality of the story. You must hear the gospel. Faith comes by hearing. But then we must apply what we believe. John Stott very concisely stated, Our creed is expressed in conduct, and our conduct is derived from our creed. I think that's a really important statement. We live out what we believe. But the life we live has its basis in truth. And so Paul asks, You began well, O Galatians. Who hindered you? His summary is this, that the race has begun. You, as followers of Christ, have begun the race. And the Galatians ran well, but but someone, these were false teachers, threw an obstacle in their course and it deviated them. And so he's challenging them. And he says this, he says, Now, this persuasion did not come from him who calls you. So the origin then of this obstacle Paul says, that obstacle didn't come from God. Remember what the Judaizers, these were the false teachers that Paul was dealing with. The Judaizers were simply saying that you must believe in Jesus Christ and you also must then follow Jewish ceremonial laws, particularly circumcision, but also you must follow the holy days and you must um, ascribe to the Jewish dietary laws. And if you do those things, then Christ will be of benefit to you. And Paul is saying that's just absolutely not true. The truth is is that we are saved by grace through faith in the merits of Christ alone. The work of Christ is, is sufficient to save you from your sins. In other words, it's Jesus plus nothing. Your salvation is based upon the work of Christ. Now, who hindered you from believing that? That didn't come from God. God's the one who called you by grace, not by merit. And so this teaching that you're saved by Jesus plus couldn't have come from God because then God would be contradicting himself. It came from somewhere else. You've been called by grace, not by merit. This persuasion didn't come from God. The very God who called you by grace. They had been persuaded This persuasion, it's it's an interesting word. It's interesting in the sense that it is used nowhere else in any Greek manuscript, not just biblical manuscript, but any Greek, ancient Greek document. This is the only place that we have where this word is used. That doesn't really have anything to do with my message. I just thought it was interesting. But they were persuaded to to abandon the truth. The false message was inconsistent with the truth of God. And there was this persuasion. There was an eloquence. Paul often wrestled with um, what he calls in 2 Corinthians the super apostles. These people who came in and they were, I guess, perhaps well-dressed, charismatic. They were, you know, I, I mean, their personality uh, was was very outgoing and they were just really... Um, persuasive, flamboyant, they flattered. Perhaps they had a physical appeal. They were all good looking. They put on a good show. 
Paul says, I, I don't come in wisdom of words. I come in power of the Holy Spirit. But he often wrestled with people who put on a good show and taught an untruth. Folks, we are to be guided by truth, not flattery, popularity, not by celebrity, not by showmanship. These are not necessarily evidence of God's work. And we are living in a culture, a celebrity culture, where we idolize those who are who flatter, who may be popular. And so we need to be careful that we understand that just because somebody puts on a good show does not make what they're saying true. We need to be discerning. Truth is truth regardless of how it's presented. Well, that's its origin. What was its effect? Paul then uses this very well-known Uh, proverb to describe the effect that these false teachers were having. He's saying this, he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dope. So he uses this this proverb to describe the um, effect of the false teaching. In other words, error spreads and it will spread throughout the entire Christian community. It's important that we understand that error in one area or error in one doctrine will affect all other doctrines. If you get one thing wrong, it is quite likely that other aspects or other doctrines that you hold will be wrong. For instance, using the book of Galatians, the the false teachers were saying that a person needed to be circumcised in order to be justified or placed in a right position before God. Well, once you do that, once you say that and you accept and you might say, oh, well, that's just, you know, why get so upset over these little tiny things, you know? Can't we all just love one another? But Paul understood that if you go in error on this one aspect, then you diminish the work of justification that is being made right before God. And if you do that, then you diminish the sufficiency of Christ's atonement. Once you say it's Jesus and something else, then... You're saying, well, a person can be justified in a lot of different ways and the work of Christ. Well, you know what? The sufficiency of the cross, perhaps there really is another way. Do you see one thing affects another? And Paul understands this. A little false teaching spreads to everything else. And eventually everything gets infected. A little leaven, a little yeast leavens the whole lump of dough. You don't need a lot of leaven. You don't need a lot of yeast to make to infect or to Um, influence the whole lump of dough. And this is what Paul is saying. Listen, you guys might be saying that, uh, you know what, I'm I'm focusing on these little minor detaily issues. And Paul's saying it's not minor detaily issues. These are not areas where we can agree to disagree. These are areas that have everything to do with how a person stands before God. For Paul, that's a pretty big deal. I think it should be a big deal for us. Does it matter that we hold to justification by faith alone? Does that matter? I think it does. I was, uh, we need to, I was listening to uh, a video this week and um, the individual on the video, I think, expressed this in a way much better than, than I can express it. So let's see if we can, uh, 
put that video up. I don't know if we're going to need to start it from the beginning, but um, it's a... Yeah, you're going to have to start it from the beginning. That's a a theologian of another era, but I think he's right. Nip it in the bud. Nip it. Nip it. And this is what Paul's doing. He's like going, I see this small error, but if I uh, don't do anything about it, it will become a big error. It will become, first it's, Little kids breaking street lamps, and then it's teenagers wearing them leather jackets and riding motorcycles. <laughs> but Paul's talking about a very serious matter. If we do not deal with this while it is small, it will grow, and then it is impossible or very difficult to get back. We need to realize that heresy begins small. Nobody starts off uh, in gross Unbelief. I'm, I'm sure perhaps some of you have um, read this article about um, this Scandinavian bishop, a woman bishop, who wants to tear down all the crosses in her church because she wants to make the church more inclusive for Muslims to come and pray. There are so many wrong, things wrong with that statement that I just made, but let me just say this. This did not happen Immediately. This began 60 years ago, maybe 70 years ago. And little by little, pretty soon, we really, it just began with um, not believing the truthfulness of God's word. And it came out of that whole movement. And little by little, one domino falls, and then another domino falls, and then another domino falls. And pretty soon, oh, by the way, she's a lesbian. I forgot to mention that. So, so a, le- a lesbian bishop declares that we need to tear down the crosses in our, cr- in our churches so that Muslims can feel more welcomed in our churches. You might as well not even have a church. But again, that just didn't, didn't happen overnight. It began very small. Something like, oh, let's not worry about that. Let's not... Can't we just love one another? Nip it in the bud. <laughs> Professor Barney <laughs> gives us the truth. Well, we've seen the origin and um, we have seen the effect of this teaching. The end of this, the end result then, we see in 
in verse 10, I have confidence in you in the Lord that I will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. So the first thing we see is Paul is confident in grace. This is an amazing statement. I am confident in you in the Lord. I love this. I'm not really confident so much in you. (laughs) I'm confident in you in the Lord. How can Paul be confident that the Galatians, the Galatians appear to be veering off course. They, they appear to be tripping over this stumbling block. And Paul understands grace. Paul understands preserving grace. Paul understands in the Lord. This is a great comfort, but again, we see Paul's theology coming out in his practice. I have confidence. Why do I have confidence? Because I understand theology. I understand grace. And based on grace, I have great confidence in you, in the Lord. I'm not necessarily, Paul, I don't think Paul would say I'm not necessarily uh, confident in my own powers of persuasion, not necessarily confident in my own preaching abilities to change your hearts, but I am confident in this. I'm confident in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That I know. I know that God keeps his own. And that if you belong to him, he will keep his own. I'm confident in that. Paul is not only confident in judgment. Paul, I'm sorry, is not only confident in grace, he's confident in judgment. That is, I'm confident that God will bring all false teaching to its end. This person, probably the ringleader, there was a movement, and Paul's probably um, speaking of an individual, perhaps the ringleader or the, the main person involved in this false teaching. God's going to bring him to judgment. He will bear his judgment, whoever he is. Heresy will be judged. False teaching will come to an end. There will come a day where Christ will shepherd, separate sheep from goats. Paul is very confident in this. Again, Paul's confidence is based on his theology. He understands the grace of the Lord. He understands the justice of the Lord. And he understands that these things will will bring about their purposes, that God will bring about his purposes through these two things. Grace to those who, who belong to him and judgment to those who reject him. I'm confident. I do want to mention a a brief word about verse 12 because it is a very challenging passage of text. I wish that those who were troubling you would even mutilate themselves. I'm always interested when I read on the Internet about somebody um, calling another person out. So person A points out a heretical viewpoint And person B says, well, that's not very loving. I wonder if they've ever read Galatians. Really? I wonder if they've ever read Galatians, because Paul doesn't seem to ascribe to that view. Paul's like, you foolish Galatians, I wish this person would mutilate themselves. And we have difficulty with that. Is is that really the right Christian response? I mean, didn't maybe Paul go a little too far? On that, basically, he's saying that, uh, you know, in your circumcision, I wish the knife would slip. That's what he's saying. 
Yes. So a number of ideas have been put forth, perhaps that this is a, a reference to uh, the, the cult of Sibylle, where um, basically there was an annual yearly festival where the priests became eunuchs, and that was celebrated, and perhaps that's what's going on, or that's kind of in the background. Um, or perhaps it deals with eunuchs being... Um, excluded from temple worship. And so Paul would be saying, well, if that's the way you want to go, why don't you just become pagans? Or if that's the way you want to go, if that's the way you believe, why don't you just go ahead and follow the law and then you're excluded from from the worship. You're excluded from coming to Christ. You're excluded from being in the presence of God. If that's where you want to go, why don't you just take it all the way to its logical conclusion or its extreme conclusion, I should say. I'm not sure about that, but I do think Martin Luther gets really close when he says this. He, he's pointing to this idea that Paul considers this idea of circumcision as a means of justification to be so serious that he will not temper his words. We live in a day of political correctness, a day of being tactful. Paul, I think at times, was tactful, but sometimes he just blurted out, and this is what he said. And I think Luther was correct. He says, blessed be by God and his word and cursed be everything that is contrary to God and his word, even though it should be an apostle or an angel from heaven. Blessed be God and his word and cursed be everything else. And this is what Paul is saying. You'd be cursed. So we can debate whether or not Paul was being Christ-like in this There are many opinions and views, but it's in our inspired text, Paul being inspired by the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit seeing fit to include it. Here it is. And Paul in verse 11 says this, he says, but brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? See, Paul taught Jesus Christ in the cross His antagonist taught that a person was justified, that is, declared not guilty by means of circumcision. In fact, in Acts chapter 15, it basically says that that unless a person is circumcised, they will not be justified. They will not be be right before God. So, Paul taught the cross. Paul taught Christ crucified. His antagonist taught circumcision. And so when he says, but if I preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? So it leads us to believe that perhaps, when was Paul preaching circumcision? Well, perhaps when he was a Pharisee before his conversion, but perhaps what I think is going on here is that Paul's antagonists are lying about him. Because See, Paul didn't have a problem with circumcision. He only had a problem with circumcision if you were to say it is the means by which a person is declared not guilty before God. In that case, that's a problem. In fact, Paul circumcised people. So it wasn't, he didn't have a real big problem with the ceremony or with the act. What he had a problem with is if you did it and then said, well, this is the means by which a person is declared righteous before God. And so because he was known to perform this act of circumcision, 
I think what's going on is that the antagonists are saying, well, wait a second, Paul's a hypocrite. He's just telling you whatever you want to hear. He actually agrees with us. After all, Paul circumcises people. And so, Paul's just inconsistent. And he really agrees with us. So, you should follow along with us. Paul says, well, if that's true, if I really agree with them, then why am I being persecuted? Why do they persecute me? See, Paul is saying, I preach Christ. And where Christ is crucified for sinners. Circumcision was salvation by human merit, that I can be saved by some ritual or by some act of devotion, that if I go to church enough or say enough prayers or light enough candles or meditate long enough, that then I can be saved. Salvation by human merit is a popular message because it tends to stoke our pride. It it tends to highlight our abilities. We are saying that my abilities somehow will endear me to God. That if I pray enough, that if I do enough external rituals, that if I um, walk on my knees in penance, or if I do some of these things, that God then will have mercy upon me. And in other words, I can get there on my own. And Paul is saying you cannot get there on your own. See, the cross is a scandal. Like the very word here, um, where the stumbling block of the cross is actually the word scandalon. It is a scandal. It, because what the cross does is it removes all human pride. It removes all self-flattery. People hate to be told that they can be only be saved at the foot of the cross, and especially in in our culture where, you know what, I'm the type of person, I pull myself up by my bootstraps, I don't need anybody's help, I'm a self-made person, I can do it. That works great in the business world and it is miserable and an utter failure if you want to be made right with God. See, the Christian faith, the cross, is antagonistic towards this idea that God helps those that help themselves or that I can get saved, I can just buckle down and I can do what is necessary and I can get it done. See, the cross is scandalous because the cross says there is nothing you can do to make yourself right with God. The only thing that you can do is to humble yourself beneath the foot, at the foot of the cross and call upon Christ to save you. And Christ, the work of Christ on the cross is sufficient to do that. Implicit in this is that by preaching human merit, Paul would be able to avoid persecution, whereas preaching Christ alone invites persecution. We can declare works or we can declare grace, but if we preach Christ we very well may be ridiculed or mocked or worse. But if we preach works that a person can earn their salvation, 
then we are preaching a Christless Christianity. Because if you can do it on your own, then what need is there for Christ? The preaching of the cross will offend people. The preaching of the cross, we are told, it's foolishness in 1 Corinthians. I think I put it up on the screen. Do I got it? There it is. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The Christ, the, the cross offended Jews. They thought it was, it was an offense. How can a person who is hung on a cross, which would be absolute evidence that he is cursed by God. Because only a criminal, only somebody cursed by God would be executed in such a heinous way. Foolish to say that that man hanging on a cross can somehow forgive my sins. It's foolishness. Or it's an offense. A stumbling block. And it's foolishness to Gentiles. It is a stumbling block because it exposes us as sinners. And it cuts the very ground out from beneath us. That ground of personal achievement that somehow, if I do enough stuff, God will have favor upon me. I say this, I I cite this passage a lot. But God already loves you. You don't need to do anything. How do I know? Because Paul tells us in Romans that when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Did you get that? When did Christ die for our sins? When you got good enough for him, when you did enough stuff, when you prayed enough, lit enough candles, um, meditated long enough, when did Christ die for your sins? While you were still a sinner. See, he already loves you. The cross is our only hope. Your own abilities to seek out your own forgiveness or to help God in his task. God does not need your help. He is perfectly capable of saving his own. And he will save you. But the only way that he, can, he will save you is by the means that he has provided. And the means that he has provided is Jesus Christ crucified, buried and dead, raised again on the third day, coming again to judge the living and the dead. That is, that Christ stood in your place and took, bore God's wrath for your sin. The just for the unjust. Christ, who had never committed a crime in all of his life, never sinned even in the slightest, died a sinner's death. He took your place. We call this substitutionary atonement. It's a fancy phrase, but it's, it's one you should all know. Christ substituted himself so that your sins would be covered over. And that is our only hope. So stop striving. Stop thinking that you can merit God's favor. He already loved you. He's been demonstrated in the cross of Christ. So I'll conclude with this. What is hindering you from running the race? If you've never started the race, I would ask, what's hindering you? Is the cross for you then a stumbling block or is it the place of salvation? For it is only when we come to the cross that we will achieve or receive and realize the salvation that God has.
has provided for us. So, you are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Let's keep running this course. Let's not get disqualified. Let's keep running. Let's be careful with our doctrine. Let's be careful with what we believe. And let's live out the life and the freedom that Christ has given for us. Let's stand and we will pray. Our gracious Lord, we know that you have loved us with a great love. And so we come into your presence this morning with adoration. We thank you, Lord, that you have done all that we need to secure our salvation. That the work of Christ was utterly and completely sufficient. And we need add nothing. And so have mercy upon us, Lord God. If we, are, if we have stumbled, if we have been hindered in running the race, Lord God, I pray that we would confess those things and that we would get up and begin moving along again, getting back into the race. I pray, gracious Lord, that you would keep us. I pray, Father God, that those who may be growing weary in this long race, Lord God, would be renewed and restored. I pray, Father God, that those who have not yet begun to run the race, Lord God, that you would convict them by your Holy Spirit and they would see their need for the stumbling block of the cross. They would no longer stumble over it, but they would see that it is life everlasting. So we give you praise and we give you thanks. Have mercy upon us. For Christ's sake, amen.